Hi, Matthew here. Before we get started, I want to apologize. We did have to take a short break here from producing episodes of the podcast. And as you might have noticed, we've also had to change our name. So we are now Cause Pods. Everything you want to know, you can find at causepods.org. Same great show, same great content, same great mission, just a slightly different name. So thank you to everybody who has been supporting this effort since the beginning. And bear with us as we are definitely going to be ramping up production into 2019. And since we are in the giving season, why don't you think about heading over to causepods.org and checking out some of the great charity work that's being done by our hosts. They could certainly use your support. Thanks again for checking out Cause Pods. Hi, and welcome to Cause Pods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at Cause Pods, we have one simple mission to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes. Whether it's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who's just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, state, country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guests' favorite cause, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causepods.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. Today on CauseCast, we are joined by two fantastic women who have started an incredible podcast and organization that has a focus on children's mental health advocacy and the healing and support for their caregivers. The, the organization is called Mothers on the Front Line. It is the name of their podcast, and we are delighted to be joined here by two of the co-founders, Dion Benson-Smith and Tammy Nyden. Tammy and Dion, thank you so much for joining me here on CauseCast today. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you. And we should also mention that there is a third co-founder, Angela Riccio, who could not be here today, but we just wanted to make sure we let everyone know that there's three incredible women who are running this organization. So, Diana, I want to start with you. Tell me a little bit about how this idea came about and why this was so important for you in you know being part of Mothers on the Frontline. Well, you know, I always like to say that this idea came about organically. Tammy and I are lucky enough to, Tammy, Angela, and I are all lucky enough to be friends. And Tammy and I both have children who have mental illness or mental health challenges. And in the process of just sharing information as mothers, and I always say this, that Tammy, in particular for me, was very valuable in helping me as a mother navigate my son's mental health challenges. And what we found out was we were sharing a lot of information between each other, not only about what kinds of doctors we should use, what kind of medications work, what the diagnosis means, but really we were starting to share a lot of information about a strategy, what you should do when you go and you talk to a doctor. So she, would, she actually gave me a recommendation when I still lived in Iowa to a particular doctor. And she said, well, when you go see him, make sure that he'll ask you this. And so you want to be prepared to answer these questions. And so over time, what we realized is what we were doing was really talking about how we interact with doctors, how we interact with teachers, and as mothers, really giving each other a roadmap on not just the, the, the intricacies of, like I said, medications, but the intricacies of, of communicating and how to tell our stories and how to not only represent our families, represent our kids and advocate for our kids, but really 
how to navigate this experience in a way that it's not so taxing. It is taxing, so I shouldn't say not so taxing, but it does, it, it honors who you are as a mother and as a caregiver. And we really wanted to have a way to bring this kind of conversation as well as conversations over policy and advocacy and open up this conversation for other mothers and caregivers who are having similar experiences. And, and Tammy, I mean, obviously your origin story, there would be very similar since you're involved, but you also have yeah. a little bit of a background in this world too. And so, you know, how did that experience sort of lend to the formation of mothers on the front line? Yeah, um, I had been doing some children's mental health advocacy for the past five years. And one of the things that was a big motivation for the podcast was as advocates, you really need to get stories out there. But there are lots of reasons it's hard to get these kind of stories out there. First of all, there's mental health um, stigma with all mental health. Unfortunately, we live in a society that still treats it as a character flaw as opposed to a health issue. So it's hard to get people to talk about mental health in general. But when it involves children, there are privacy issues. And so that is also a concern. So it's really hard to get uh, families to share these stories. And we want podcasting gave us a way to do it that we could allow people to maintain their privacy when they told their stories, maintain their child's privacy, and be able to do it in a way they could still be authentic and real. And so that, to us, was a great way to do it. So I agree with Dion. Part of it was just realizing conversations between two moms going through this are very valuable for other moms to hear. But also, from an advocacy point of view, how do you get these stories out there? So it's not just, I joked with one of the reporters that he kept asking to talk to me. I'm like, well, there's not just us same five families in Iowa dealing with this. And he goes, but you're the only five that will talk. And that really sort of was a something that influenced this to me as well. So, I mean, you could have very easily started a support group. You could have very easily had a Facebook group and just, you know, left it at that or, you know, just a place with online personas and still remained anonymous. But what was it about the podcast specifically? Like, why did that become a part of the piece? One of the reasons, and because we did talk about this, and we ironically, we have a Facebook page and we have a Twitter account and some other things, but really getting at the central element of, of telling one's story and, and having access to different stories, right? And, and stories that women are telling and, and really communicating experience. Uh, the Facebook pages are, are good, but it requires you to, to write. It requires you to, you're in a singular space. And one of the things that I think is unique about the podcast is really the podcast is the format in which we upload the interviews, right? And the interview space is really a space where, and we talk a lot about this, where we are talking as mothers with other caregivers or, or advocates within the children's mental health community. And we're really trying to, in that interviewing space, really provide a, a space of compassion, a space of empathy, and a space that opens up the ability for interview participants to tell their story exactly how they want it to be heard. And the podcast format allows us to, to interview and collect the interviews, be in an interviewing space with different women advocates, 
um, parents and then sort of upload and share that in a way that maybe because I'm not as technologically advanced yet, <laughs> I couldn't and we couldn't figure out how to do this with Facebook. And that's not to say that we won't in the future, but this is why we arrived at the podcast as a way of sharing what was going on in the actual interviews. Yeah. There's also an intimacy with it. When you're listening to it, you can listen to it in the privacy of it's just you and the people you're listening to. And I think that that helps because some of the people we're hearing from that are listening, just listening is an act, an important act for them because they haven't talked about this with anybody. Right. And so to have that private space where they can listen and know they're not alone, I think that's important too, that other formats don't provide that same sort of feeling of intimacy, I think, as podcasts do. I think that's important too. And they add with that, I mean, in, in terms of what you're talking about with the intimacy, is there's something really personal about listening to voices and the ability to listen to, and I'm a, a, a huge podcast, I listen to podcasts for lots of different reasons and lots of different types of podcasts, but I know when I put on my headset and I'm listening to someone talk, it is like I'm with them. And, and exactly what Tammy is saying, there's a level of intimacy and a level of participation in this sort of process and experience that, that we thought podcasting lent better to the, what we're trying to do, particularly when we're talking about healing. It is always so amazing to me how much emotion can come through just hearing someone's voice, the, you know, the pace at which they're speaking, the tone of their voice, even, even the pauses in when they're speaking can have such an impact on the people listening and, and what they're saying versus, as you indicated before, if it was just printed online. Yeah, right. So, and I imagine too, with this particular topic and, you know, it is about mothers on the front line, but, you know, I'm sure there's uh, some fathers who are listening to this as well. I, I imagine, as you said, you know, when, as a mother, as a parent, anytime your child is struggling with something, is dealing with something, is suffering with something like not only are you struggling and dealing and fighting with it yourself as a parent, but you know, there's a propensity to, I guess, want to take blame for it or, you know, want to understand like what you did wrong or like how you caused this, like how you didn't prevent this. So I guess that intimacy, that that sort of caregiving network that, you know, arm around each other feeling that you get from a podcast is is really, really important. Do you, do you find that to be the case, Tammy? I do. And I think Part of that's part of what's so important about how we try to set up the interviews as well. They're always done between two people. Occasionally, we've interviewed two people at a time that were, you know, mother and daughter. Um, but there's nobody, there's no technicians there. It's just us. We're operating the microphone ourselves so that there's no outsider listening in. We find, we do these in the community, find us, you know, a, a space where there's privacy and we can speak. And we spend a lot of time before the interview starts just making sure everyone's comfortable and um, talking about what we're doing. Why I think, you know, Deanna and I talk about this a lot, why I think it's working is because when the microphone goes off, people keep speaking and we leave with hugs and tears and people say it's transformative. And I know it's transformative to me when, I, when I've been 
had the honor to interview somebody. And so I think it's not just the podcast, but the interviewing process as well that leads to the podcast is, is healing. Because whenever you have two people who really are listening to each other and are present with each other, something really important happens. Yeah, there's a space and in, in... There's so much, Matthew, that happens when you are a parent of a child with any kind of chronic illness, but particularly an illness that is so stigmatized and it's isolating. And that was part of even in the beginning of the process where I said I was lucky to have Tammy because I, if I did not have Tammy as a friend, let alone a colleague, and I would have been utterly alone. I would not have known any other mother that I could go to and say, this is happening and this is what's going on. And this is why I'm absent from things. And this is why, you know, our lives have been upended and that talking space and that relational space becomes a space of healing to, to actually hear, like you said, there's so much intimacy in someone's voice and hearing someone laugh and listening to someone work through a lot of the same emotions, or even if it's not emotions that you've had, but knowing that there are people who are working through and, and trying to learn in the same way that you are, it really does close a gap. And I agree with Tammy. I think the interview space, I mean, it's an incredibly healing space for both me every time I interview. It's like pieces, I, I recognize pieces of myself, but other pieces of myself are also healed. So yeah. Have you found that, I mean, I'm sure, again, with your connections, Tammy, and, and just with what you're dealing with, I'm, I'm sure it's easy enough to find people, but have you found that because of this podcast that you are able to reach out to different experts and different practitioners with a little bit more ease? Like, do you find that they're more receptive to your questions or to supporting you or to anything like that? because you now have this platform to, you know, to communicate with an audience like this? I'm not sure. I, I think that receptivity went up when I became more of a public advocate and they sort of saw me that way, which preceded the podcast. So I'm not sure that changed with the podcast itself. I do think that we feel and have come to see that the way we view ourselves at Mothers in the Frontline is, is as a wisdom collective, right? We're, we're really gathering this wisdom and sharing it with each other. And so we come to realize that those experts can be helpful and they're important, but there's so much expertise and wisdom we're getting from each other that some of us are fortunate enough to maybe have a support group or a women's monthly dinner with other special needs moms or something like that to get that, but so many people don't have it. And so that's what the podcast is trying to provide. So I guess my answer is not really, that wasn't my experience with providers, but I do feel it's helped us reach out to other caregivers and advocates that I've, I've met so many amazing people through this work that I never would have met otherwise in that regard. In addition to the podcast, what we've done, what we have are workshops in, in talking about telling your story and how to communicate and tell your story to family members, doctors, social workers in a way that leaves you feeling whole. And for me as a parent, I, I can't say that it's changed the behavior. My participation in this has changed the behavior of any of the doctors or experts 
that I deal with, but it has changed the way in which I receive and I interact with them. And my participation in this and, and talking to other parents and, and listening to the podcast and doing the interviews and the workshop has certainly helped me feel a lot less stigmatized and a lot less blame. Just naming, parent blaming and mom blaming is in, and talking about what that means is it was a significantly healing process for me personally. Yeah. Absolutely. I would just add to that. And that's been, I think, so important because one of the things we do in the workshops is we talk about how do you tell your stories to your child's providers and so forth um, in order to get them better care. But it also comes down to helping us feel more whole. And that's where Deanne's friendship has been critical to me and, and Angela's friendship as well, because when we find ourselves blaming ourselves, we step in and say, oh, don't, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're a great mom, you're doing everything you can and, and being supportive and helping us through that because there's so many pressures from mother blame in our culture. So I agree with Deanne, I interact differently with the providers because of this experience. I'm not sure they're inter interacting differently with us, but but it's changed how we approach, how we feel. And I think that's really important because I'm a better advocate for my kid now. I mean, not that I think that you did this for this reason, but it's it's amazing to me that some of the best projects, and this can be, you know, nonprofit work, this can be a business that somebody launches, this could be a podcast, but, you know, so much of it can come from a a selfish ambition. Like, you know, it it wasn't like I, I know that you're you're motivation for this was good and altruistic and was helpful, but like, it was so helpful for you two. And then to see that, you know, in just trying to solve for your own concerns that you can create something that could be so beneficial to so many other people. Like, I think people are sometimes afraid to want to solve their own problems and not realize that in doing so that they're going to find a whole community of people that share in those experiences and can benefit from you sort of working your way through the issues. Yeah, I think that that's true. And and to to reach back and why the podcast is so important, because we ask ourselves this, we go back, we're, we're doing workshops. What does the podcast provide is the hope, I can say, and it seems like this is the feedback that in providing the space and, and the listening space, for people who can't, because this is not to say having a podcast takes the place of support groups and other things that exist, but one of the things that Tammy and I both realized is that as mothers of children with comprehensive health needs, it's not always possible to get to a support group. It's not always possible to provide the experience or get to the experience, go to that experience. And, you know, for me, as an just to be blunt, as an African-American woman, it's also difficult sometimes in, in certain spaces. And so to have the ability to, it is slightly selfish and altruistic to say that, yes, this is an experience that we have, but, and we want to share it. And hopefully it allows for people to interact in the way or in the place that they're at, at the moment. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I, yeah. I think it does. And I'm sure that with any time anybody's dealing with something in the medical side of life, there's a lot of driving and a lot of waiting rooms and potentially a lot of maybe waiting outside appointments, you know, as a parent with this, like 
I'm sure many times you're in the room, but you know, many times you might not be. And so I'm sure having something that people can easily, you know, pop in an earbud and listen while they're just sitting around waiting makes this, a, you know, as you said, an invaluable resource when you can't get to that support group or, you know, you, you can't get out of the house to, to go meet up with people. Right. We all often joked around also about what can we do that a parent can engage with while they have to be engaging with and helping their child? You can put on your earbuds and your kid's not hearing it. They're not seeing something. It sounds funny, but sometimes, you know, you, you can't step away even for a minute. So to be able to, you know, put on your earbuds for a few minutes um, as your child's falling asleep, it, it's a big deal to have that kind of access to not feeling like you're completely alone. Oh, I'm sure. So I do think that's an advantage to podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sure every minute of it. So, you know, at the time that this is coming out, it's going to be November. And so uh, I know you have May is Children's Mental Health Month, but November is also Caregiver Month and you do have an information campaign. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what is going on in November and, and what sort of awareness you're you're hoping to raise during the month? Well, we'll just be having some information on our website and on Facebook throughout the month. We are currently actually engaged in a project before November. We're currently working on in the end of October, um, so before this will come out. Where we've always wanted to take this is that we're not always doing the interviewing. And we're excited that we'll be training other people to do interviews so that everyone can interview in their own community. The, the rule of our podcast is the person doing the interviewing has the same salient lived experience as the person that they're interviewing. And so that allows us to open up and get a lot more experiences than ones that are similar to mine and Dion's being recorded. So we're excited to have our first training where, because I guess the whole point behind our podcast is we're really trying to hand the mic to other people to hear their story as well. And that's a little different. So we're not really hosts, if that makes sense. We're other, some of our podcasts will be another interviewer and another mother doing their thing. So you really are just taking credit as the facilitators. Yeah, that's pretty much what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so now it's an incredible story, and you know, you both have an incredible background, and I think what you're doing is is admirable, and it sounds like it's it's wildly successful, and that it's very helpful to many mothers, and again, many parents out there alike. I'm just curious, though, as someone who produces a cause cast as somebody who actually uses this particular medium to get your message out there. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned and what were some things that, you know, somebody else hearing this, you would want them to, I, I guess, you know, the, the pitfalls or the lessons that you learned that they could take away so that they can be successful, you know, right from the get go. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot. We have time. We have nowhere to go, so I'll take them all. <laughs> yeah, I want to reiterate something Dion just said, is we're still learning. And we're you know fairly new. We started in 2017. One of the things I think is really important for us, and this might be going against the grain, but in the story work we're doing, we really stress that this model of every story has a beginning, middle, and end. Well, no, it doesn't. Many of the people we're talking to are in the middle of it. They don't know where it's going. And we want to honor that. And so we try to allow people to tell their story and not shape it into an arc, which seems unnatural 
to most of the kind of media we're used to, I think. And I think that's why it's refreshing for me that we're doing the podcast in this way. I've been interviewed um, by many, you know, like new, for newspapers and TV and things like that in terms of advocacy. And they often want to turn my family's story into a triumph story um, because mm-hmm. that's what people want to read. But every time I'm interviewed, I'm not at a moment of triumph. And sometimes that feels really false. <laughs> and, and so I think that's one of the things we talk about a lot is allowing stories to unfold organically as they unfold. And so I would say, honor the story and where it is when you find it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Don't try to force it into a, into a narrative that might not exist. That, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. What about you, Dion? Well, I, I, I was thinking it's funny cause now we're going to reverse, right? I, I said you were the tech <laughs> tech guru because and maybe because Tammy spends so much time in the technology and is and I'm just going to take this opportunity to give her a compliment has become wonderfully proficient with all of these different applications and from WordPress to to Blueberry and I don't even know if I pronounced it correctly and the editing software that I don't think she realizes or is she's not giving herself enough credit in terms of the learning curve, because it just to be personal, you have a philosopher and a, a <laughs> woman's studies professor. Who, we are not trained to do this. She's trained in a totally different way. I'm trained with data as a political scientist and women's studies. And we both sort of jumped in. And I think in this way, it was probably, you could piggyback if you want, Tammy, it's probably a good thing that we didn't know ahead of time probably exactly we wouldn't have we would have said it's too hard (laughs) exactly yeah i would have i if somebody had told me all of the steps of uploading and editing and and i'm still not proficient editing software editing is a really big deal and and for instance we have music and we have wonderful music in in the podcast and i just attended a conference where another group who also, they're doing podcasts on parenting. And we started emailing. And they were like, well, we want to ask you this question. How did you get the music for your podcast? (laughs) How did you all put the music in? And so this was, it sounds like it's a small thing, but it was something that we thought of in the beginning. And we walked through, you know, copyright, what kind of music, what kind of mood. And I'm going to toss it to you, Tammy, because you actually worked this out in terms of just music. Well, in this case, we were very lucky because we um, work with students who created the music for us and they want to be known as flame emoji is what the term that they use. But um, they, they created this music for us, which was such a gift. And so we were very lucky with that. That they did, and they created it for this, so they made it for, particularly for intros and outros. So, thank you, Arhan. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and so, yeah. but I mean, I, I mean, I bring it up because it seems like it's a very simple. It's 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 something that is part of podcasts, and we take it for granted the podcasts that have music. And it wasn't until I was asked this question that I, I really thought about, oh, there is this all these steps that we had to go through technically, even from you know, what kind of equipment we're going to use and then using the equipment properly, which I still, I get armpit sweats when I have to record because (laughs) I'm still like, I'm still getting used to the wavelength bars and what they mean. And, 
you know, I remember when Tammy walked through with me on the editing software, just how to dampen out background noise. And it, it just, I'm still not proficient and I'm, I definitely don't feel very confident when I'm doing it. And I think I have yet to actually produce and edit it. So Tammy's been doing most of the editing, all of the editing, because I'm just speaking for myself. I'm still trying to, to feel confident in that way. If you ask me to do an interview, you ask me to run a workshop, even if you ask me to write something, I'm like, yes, I'm very confident in it. But editing and wavelength bars and editing out background noise, it, it is a, a learning curve. And I would say to anybody who is doing this to be gentle with yourselves and, and understand that this is, unless you're professionally trained in doing this, it is a learning curve. And it's not going to sound like Tammy said, it's not going to sound like This American Life or, or the podcast that you might be used to listening to, but it doesn't mean it's less worthwhile. Uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic advice for everyone. I mean, as someone who produces podcasts professionally, you know, having highest quality sound is important to my clients. But, you know, I, I've always said good content will go a lot further than good quality. You know, there are certain there are certain minimums of quality that you need to meet in order for people not to leave a podcast, but no one is subscribing to a podcast because they're like, wow, those are some really good sounding mics. If the if the content isn't relevant <laughs> or if the topic isn't relevant or if, you know, the value being provided isn't there, you know, you can have the best studio in the world, but no one's going to care. But, you know, I think that's that's great advice. Yeah. And I think just to piggyback on that, you need to just start. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It's not going to be right. just the way you wish it would be. But that's how you keep getting better and you learn. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out so many things. And we really just feel like, I feel like I'm at the beginning and learning all this. And, and Dion's being modest. There are so many aspects of this. That the interview questions, I mean, everything, like there's no way we could have done this without her amazing insight. And so, but I, that would be my advice is get started. Don't hold off until you feel ready because you'll never feel ready. There are too many different pieces to master, I, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, no, it's I, I 100%. It's, it's the same advice I would give a, a lot of people. Deanna, I have, I have a, another quick question for you. Since you brought it up, I'm, I'm going to see if there's anything taken away. But as a data scientist, anything in the numbers for podcasting or anything like that that sort of piqued your interest that you would want to share with us? I don't know in, in terms of the numbers, in terms of podcasting, but I know that in the way in which we conceived this project from the very beginning and, and why we decided to focus on narratives instead of collecting data, for instance, was that we realized that and as a data scientist, your data is only good or your data is only as good as the, the information that you have access to. And so we realized in very quickly that women and mothers and caregivers and caregiver stories, and particularly any types of stories around children's mental health, there is not a lot of, of, of narrative out there. There's, there's a particular narrative, and, and Tammy can pick this up too, around mental health and mental health crises. And it was really geared towards adults. And because that narrative is geared in that way, and the data that has been collected is largely collected on adults. If you look at 
I'm also a policy person. So if you look at the policy outcomes and where, where most of the resources and most of our policies are directed is towards adults with mental health issues. And what, has, what was left out is children. And because children are in a very precarious position of telling their story, so to speak, one of the reasons why we, we decided to focus on caregivers and caregiver stories was not just to put the emphasis back on or centering the caregiver in this, but really, honestly, particularly with a, ch a child, the caregiver is the center and the caregiver is the one that has access to all of the different intersections of the experience of a child or the experiences of parenting and caregiving for a child with uh, mental health diagnoses. So as a data person, it was really important. I, I, I don't know if I'm answering the question about data with podcasts, but I know it was very important for us to get the narratives out there so the narratives could start to inform the data collection later on with regard to children's mental health. I mean, the truth is that doesn't answer my question at all, but I think what you said is actually, it brought about a more pressing, a more important, like a more interesting issue that I think I had never thought about it that way. That like, right, you know, in the beginning you said like mental health is still largely stigmatized. Like we're finally starting to see society come around to being more open, being more accepting. We still have a lot of hurdles to get over, but, you know, we are more encouraging and more accepting of of, you know, having, you know, open discussions about mental health, but right, like we're still in such the infancy of that discussion that, right, we haven't even gotten to the idea of what it means as the parent and the caregiver to deal with that. So like, right, like my question, pff, who cares anymore? I think that was a, a fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic thought. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And Tammy, I'm sorry to have cut you off. Please continue. No, I just want to follow up on that because this is what Deanna and I talk about a lot because she is a policy person and I am, a, I do the history and philosophy of science. And so I talk a lot about method. And one of the dreams that we sort of have of this is once these narratives are gathered, as you gather a lot of these, you can sort of see what stories are naturally arising. So I sort of see this as an inductive process where People get to tell the story they need to tell at that moment. They tell us what's important. We're not doing research questions. We're not going in with a hypothesis and trying to answer a question about it based on what they say. We let them say what they want to say. And we think that that inductive method will come up with issues that then both qualitative and quantitative researchers can then start asking questions about that they never would have. Because when you start research, you're always starting with a research question that your hypothesis, and that's always informed with the nar a pre-existing narrative. And so and there this gives us that one, chance to challenge it. Yeah. And, and yeah, go ahead, challenge it. And also there, there just really is not as, as a person who is, who is interested in both qualitative and quantitative work, there quite literally is not enough data out there on what it's like. To, to parent a child, but even what it's like to be sort of in the middle of, of a very complex health crisis like mental illness and the effects that it has. I mean, if we, if we move it to other chronic illnesses, 
And even if you click on, on, you know, the website for childhood MS, there's lots there about the economic crises that it can cause and where to get support. There's lots of numbers with regard to, to, you know, health trajectories, not just with the children, but with family members and how you can be effective support and what you need to do. And what we realized is this is not necessarily the case for children's mental health. And it's not because of the fact that people are not in the moment of crises and there aren't families out there. It's just that there aren't any stories. There's not Mm -hmm. enough of a narrative, enough of the stories for even a researcher like myself, if I were going to go in and decide to design something that would survey parents of children who have mental health challenges, I wouldn't know where to even begin to ask questions. And, and so, yeah, you know, I didn't answer the podcast thing. I'm sorry, but this is why the <laughs> podcast <laughs> numbers, and this is why the Again, podcast is important. I would add to that, Deanne, because that comes back to the, you know, caregiving month. One of the struggles we're having, we, we did an information campaign for Children's Mental Health Month in May, and we were anticipating doing the same thing in November, but there's no data and we're not no. finding data. So we can't do the same thing we did in May. So that's, really frustrating, but it's also an important thing to notice. What there is data on, and it's still an emerging field, but at least there's something on, the cost of caregiving emotionally, financially, and so forth for adults caregiving other adults. Yes. But when a parent is caregiving a child with special needs, whether they're physical, mental, developmental, intellectual, and otherwise, People just tuck that under parenting, and it's not. It's a whole other gamut. It's not the same as parenting. When you have a child with a chronic illness, uh, with a complex health condition, it's a whole other job in addition to parenting, and that is not recognized in our society, and it's certainly not recognized in the research and what kind of health implications that caregiving has to the caregivers themselves. And what and just the, that's doing to families and so on. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and, and just no, go ahead. <laughs> draw a line from what Tammy is saying to the policy implications of that. The policy implications of, of sort of folding the complex nature of caregiving that happens for parents of children with chronic illnesses under sort of parenting means that in areas where when we start to explore caregiving and the aspects of caregiving, adult adult caregiving, what it means is that then there are services provided for the caregivers. And there's certainly respite care, right, for, for parents, but the respite care for parents is not as extensively explored as the respite care in, and I shouldn't say extensively explored, but it's, it's limited respite care. But when you are a caregiver as an adult caregiver, there are tax breaks. There's all these different things that are kind of folded in because the caregiving expectation isn't there for adult to adult, yeah. even yes. husband yes. to wife or wife or spouse to spouse. And when you fold it under parenting, then all of the economic costs, the social costs, what we're talking about in social isolation, um, the physical costs and the spiritual costs, all of a sudden get collapsed and we don't, it becomes totally invisible. And that's part that is probably at the heart of why we decided to focus in and really try to center not just the children, but uh, a focus on the caregivers. Well, I, I think that what Mothers on the Frontline is doing both 
Dion and Tammy who are here and, and Angela who couldn't join us. I think it's just a wonderful, ambitious, and such an important concept. I love the way that you talk about it. I love the way that you structure everything. I love the the support and the narrative that you're trying to get out there, you know, even without trying to force it onto anybody or, or try to, you know, artificially develop something that doesn't exist. Just, you know, being a resource that doesn't exist right now. And I think it's so important. I think it's it's such a great cause. And, you know, as part of your efforts and as part of what we do here on CauseCast, we will be sure to create a GoFundMe page with all proceeds benefiting mothers on the front line. Uh, it is a certified 501c3. If you want more information about that, you can get that from the show notes. You can go directly to mothersonthefrontline.com. From there, you can learn more about the, the nonprofit, check out the podcast, check out some of the other incredible resources that are there. Learn more about uh, Tammy, Dion, Angela, the whole team. They've got you know a lot of great information and resources there. And I really just want to thank both of you for taking some time and telling me the story and, and opening my eyes up to something that I hadn't thought about. But you know, once you say it, it just it does sound so obvious. Some of the the hurdles that are out there that people aren't even thinking about jumping over. And I'm glad, you know, there are people like you in the world that are that are doing it. So Dion and Tammy, thank you so much for joining me here on CauseCast today. Thank, thank you, Matthew. You. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause Pods. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guests, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their work and a special donation link to support their favorite efforts. From there, you can also follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And remember, if you have a cause pod and want to join me for an interview, please check out causepods.org and fill out the interview request form. If approved, we'll schedule you for a chat and share the amazing work you're doing with the CausePod audience. Thanks again, and see you next time on CausePods. Pods.